Hello and welcome to From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. The guest for this episode is Jared Webb, founder of Design Wealth. He talks about his company's unique approach to financial planning, leveraging behavioral economics to innovate, and the significant challenge of changing people's relationship with their money. Design Wealth is part of Fernhill Financial, a Victoria-based family business operating since 1994. Our conversation starts now. In three, two. So I'm. Uh, my name is Jared Webb, and uh, I'm one of the founders with Design Wealth here in Victoria. Uh, we're an initiative of Fernhill Financial, which is a family-run business uh, again in Victoria. Uh, for the last 25 years, uh, we celebrated 25 years back uh, in 2019. So some 10 year in the financial services industry uh, for sure. But design wealth is is the the future of financial planning. Um, it's the evolution of what's to come uh, in the industry. Uh, and really the, the difference with design wealth versus most other, if not all other services, is its focus. Uh, and that is it's not so much focused on uh, financial planning in, in the number sense, but more in the people. Uh, you know, that is the most uh, important part and the last uncharted territory when it comes to financial planning is humans and human behavior. Um, and so it's quite an exciting frontier, um, human behavior and, and uh, behavioral economics as a field of study is approximately 50 or 60 years old only uh, as an official science and, and field of study. So this really is a brand new chapter in, in what we're understanding about how we think and why we do the things that we do. Uh, and it has a tremendous influence um, on whether or not we're successful um, in creating wealth for ourselves much more than rates of return, types of products, et cetera. So it's an incredibly uh, uh, exciting time for sure. Yeah, no, I do like that. I, and I remember because we, we had talked originally when the, when this, when your initiative first started and it is certainly a different, a different take, but I think it makes a lot of sense in light of maybe the lack of financial literacy, at least I would say in my own demo, uh, demographics. But before we go into that, can you just speak a little bit to your, your personal background? You mentioned kind of a family business. You, I'm assuming you grew up kind of in the financial sector and then kind of maybe what led you to, to develop design wealth. If it was maybe a frustration with maybe a lack of, of market entrance or yeah. um, just a personal passion there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, my history, I've been in, involved, if you will, with uh, finances, et cetera, personally, since I was about nine. Um, <laughs> my, uh, it, it all started when my, uh, my parents uh, came to myself and my brother and uh, said they were going to give us each, well, we heard give, they said lend uh, $500. Um, we were very excited about that, but then they followed that quickly up with, and you're getting a job so you can pay it back. Uh, what they were trying to teach is, you know, we were going to take that 500 and invest it uh, and, and learn about investing and creating wealth and that sort of thing. And that is what we did. Uh, they lent us the money. Uh, we invested it. Uh, again, I was nine. My brother was seven. And we proceeded to get a paper route. Uh, we held a paper route from age nine until I finished high school at age 17. Um, and uh, we paid them back uh, and continued to, uh, you know, invest a portion of the money and spend the rest and, and following, you know, good... Um, prudent cash flow and, and budgeting, uh, you know, advice there. Um, and then, uh, you know, when it comes to the professional side, I've done this, I've been a financial advisor, I'm a certified financial planner, um, and I've done it for about 14 years. And uh, what 
got me into this wasn't so much finance as it was business. Um, understanding the uniqueness of what we have here with with Fernhill and Design Wealth, um, the ability to do you know as as cliches as it might sound that the good that we can do with with what we know and 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 how we approach things, uh, and that did appeal to me. And I knew it was something that was really important to continue on uh, and uh, and create that succession um, uh, for uh, for our family's business. And so yeah, so that's basically where it came from. Design wealth has only been around for about three years. And where it really started was just a, a, an idea. Um, it was a, a gentleman named Michael Kitsis, uh, Nerd's Eye View is his podcast and his blog. And uh, uh, he is a CFP, uh, financial advisor, blogger, uh, speaker down in the United States. And he interviews people all over the world uh, in finance. And it was just through listening to his podcast that we started to pull at the thread of what the future of the financial industry looks like and where it was going. And we could start to see this undercurrent that, it, that financial planning and financial planning software and, and even the tools that we use, they're all just table stakes now. And really what it comes down to is the people side of things, uh, making sure that we fully understand what it is that's important to people beyond the numbers, beyond the money and, and what we think we should focus on. Um, because at the end of the day, I mean, it's, you know, it's cliche, but you know, money doesn't buy happiness. It makes things better. It can help. But at the end of the, you know, you, you can't, uh, if you're not really living an authentic lifestyle and, and, and really trying to be, um, have the best lifestyle that you can have for yourself, it, you know, what's, what's the point? Um, and so that's really what we, where that came from was this frustration that there's no, there is no focus on that in the industry. It, it's still very old school, very product driven, very tool driven, uh, as opposed to the larger, uh, and more important picture. Yeah, no, I, I do like that. And I think even like the design wealth and the name and kind of like the, that with starting your customers off on what does your life, what do you want your life to look like? Is there been anything since in this three-year time that's really surprised you that uh, from your customers? Like, is there pushback on it or is there maybe a certain part of your business that's kind of blossomed that you didn't expect to, to pop as much? Or? Yeah, I, I think the thing that, that really excites me about it is the conviction of the process that we go through to provide the advice that we do. We, we basically are able to eliminate any questions around whether or not something can be achieved with regards to the numbers, the finances, the, the really the easy stuff. And it lets us really focus on, you know, not to, not to harp on it, but the, the human element, the, the things that may or may not be actually the things preventing us from accomplishing our dreams. You know, a lot of our, our study, we've been geeking out on human behavior stuff. Um, uh, Melina Palmer, the Brainy Business podcast out of uh, just out of Seattle here. She's brilliant in introducing behavioral economic concepts that can be applied in business. Uh, and you know, and there's certain things like time discounting, which is sort of the I Start Monday effect. You know that that you you and, and the reason is it's 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 fascinating because when we think about our future selves, our brain lights up as if we're talking about a totally different person. But if we talk about ourselves in the present, 
the other side of our brain lights up. And, and so there's these two parts of the brain that light up when we're thinking about ourselves, our future selves is an entirely different person. And so it makes it easier to task them with the things that our present self doesn't want to do. Get up early, start exercising, don't spend money on lattes or whatever other things we think we want to do or need to accomplish. We can put it on that person because it's not us. But when it comes time to actually do something and our, and our present brain realizes, wait, you want me to do that? You want me to get up at six and go for a run? Whoa, no, you know what? I didn't get a good night's sleep last night and the kids woke me up and the dog needed to be let out. You know what? Tuesday is going to be better. I'll get sleep tonight and Tuesday I'll start my runs. And that's why we have this trouble. So basically what Design Wealth tries to do is understand our motivations and what we're, what we're doing in the human behavior side because we're able to remove or, or understand the finances and the money and, and be able to make the conversation about the important stuff. You know, um, so yeah, it, it's, you know, it's been fascinating to be able to, like I say, go through this process and, and with conviction and understanding, be able to guide people and, and really add that extra, the value that they're craving. Yeah. And, so, and so let's say you're onboarding somebody, can you, so do you put them through like a, a standardized set of questions? Do you have a, an informal discussion maybe like we're having now? Um, like what is that, what is that, that discovery process looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know what, John, it's, it's interesting that we have um, three questions. We actually um, borrowed from something called the evoke method. And really the, the, when we sign on a client and a client is, is engaged with us, we have three scenarios that we present to them. And the first scenario is, is really easy. So basically it goes like something like this. You know, you wake up tomorrow morning and the total of all of your accounts, your businesses and the empire you own is enough to support you and your family now and in the future. In other words, you're done. You do not have to go to work or make any more money. The question is, what do you do with your life now? How do you live life? Do you change anything? What do you do? Don't hold back. Explain what what looks what life looks like as it is richly and uniquely yours and then we just get you to explain that and and the, the floor is open go nuts once we finish you know really flushing that out we go to a second scenario and it goes like this you go to the doctor and the doctor shocks you with news that you only have five to ten years to live the good news is is that you won't feel any pain for the time you have remaining. The bad news is you don't know how much time you have. You don't have unlimited funds. You just have the resources, time, talent, et cetera, that you have sitting in the chair today. The question is, what do you do with the time you have remaining? Will you make any changes? And if so, what would those be? And so now we, we've shortened that time frame, as you can see. And so we get people to answer that. And what we start to really understand is what's important to them. The stuff that they said in scenario one was, was really, they got time. They got all this time in the world. They can do all this planning. They can do all this stuff. Now we've shortened that time frame significantly. Now we start to pull out family, uh, make, you know, uh, mend bridges uh, with people. Um, you know, work's not so important now. And so we start to pull out of them those values that they truly have. And then the third scenario is they go back to their doctor and without an option for a second opinion, they get the shocking news that they have one day left to live. 
Now, the question is not what do they do in their last day, because we can all think of beautiful things to do, but rather focus on the feelings that arise as you face your very real mortality. Ask yourself, what did I not get to do? What did I not get to be? Don't hold back. Explain. And the, the amazing thing about that question is, as I'm sure maybe even you experienced as I'm, as I'm reciting it to you, is, is that, oh my gosh, like what would I do? And all the things, all the things that you left undone, all the things that you, you, didn't, you left on the table and didn't do. And what this does is this is these three scenarios really help to, as I say, pull out those values and really what's important. We don't care about when you want to retire, how much income do you want, et cetera. That, that's, that doesn't mean anything. We want to get to what matters to you. And so these questions are extremely important and create the foundation for the work we do moving forward. All that builds off of this, but this is absolutely core because there's two more parts to this sort of visioning stage, which is what we call it. And that is to distill these three scenarios as someone reflects upon them into actionable steps. But we always go back and just test them against those visions, those vision scenarios and stages to make sure that everything's aligned. So it, it's an incredible, and, and I have learned so much more about current clients and, and, and you know, future clients with those three questions than I ever have off a know your client form or a standardized, you know, when do you want to retire type questionnaire. It, it's been incredibly informative. Yeah, no, I, can, I can't imagine that. I, I feel like, or does it take you a little while to build a relationship where people feel comfortable telling you that kind of stuff? Because I feel like, um, you know, I've known you for a bit. So I, I can imagine if you and I have that conversation, it's a little bit easier. But if it's, you know, if I filled out a form online and I'm meeting you for the first time, I'd imagine that could be sometimes challenging. Do you have to kind of prod or probe a little bit to get people to be fully transparent there? Sometimes, but it's amazing how open people are. I find that if there is already a pre-established relationship, that that can be difficult because it does require a very uh, large sense of vulnerability, right? It, it, not even a sense, it just requires vulnerability. And so, you know, if, if I already have a pre-existing relationship with, with somebody to ask them to be that open can, I think, sometimes be more difficult than coming in and, you know, for example, I mean, you, you might, you probably wouldn't have any problem going in and just talking to a, a brand new doctor about something very personal because they're a professional and they're a medical professional and this is what they do. And so it could be something that you might not go and talk to your best friend about, but this is someone that in their, in their professional capacity, you'd be willing to share. And so I think it's the same in that regard is that they, they view this situation and, and, and our process, I mean, our process is normal to us. It may not be what everyone else does, but it's what we do. Um, and people appreciate that. So no, I don't think it's, it's difficult to pull those out, but what the challenge is, is people that have never actually considered this stuff. So sometimes that does take time. But the other thing too, Don, we don't just do it. It's not just a one and done. So part of our process, it, it, it's, a, it's nothing that we're linear when it comes to financial planning because life's very fluid. Um, you know, it's not about, you know, change is not linear. It doesn't, it doesn't end. We're always evolving. We're always changing. There's, it's never a straight line. And so even with this particular uh, visioning stage that we go through, we do have it where we come back to it and it, 
at the very least, revisit and make sure that those values are still true. And if there's anything else to add, because again, values can shift, right? Depending on life yeah. experiences. Yeah, no, it makes it makes sense. I, I appreciate you clarifying that. And so if let's say, you know, for me, I want to have, you know, some sort of financial in, independence, and, you know, take a, a couple of nice trips a year, do you kind of just take, or maybe even could you just walk through a couple of maybe generic steps that people are taking like these, act, the behaviors that you're trying to, to modify in relation to personal finances? Like what would you specifically prescribe? Yeah, absolutely. So basically that we, we have a defined process that we go through. So we've talked you know, extensively about the visioning process and laying that foundation. But the next thing we look at is cash flow. And not just budgeting. We are huge proponent, proponents of spending your money. You can't take it with you. You know, what are you going to do? Line the coffin or burn it? You know, <laughs> burn it when you get cremated? I mean, you, you can't do anything with money. It's meant to be spent. So let's spend it. Um, it's just a matter of doing it responsibly. Um, and, and the simple math of it, if you make $3 and spend 4 that's not sustainable. You, you just can't do that. You're in credit. I mean, that, that, that stuff makes sense, but too many people don't look at it that way. They, they make it more complex than it, than it needs to be. So the other thing that we find in financial planning in a traditional sense is we talk in generalities. We, we, we talk in rules of thumb. Well, rules of thumb are great in theory, but those are not applicable to a person's individual situation. It might be that, you know, the theory might be, well, you should save 10% of your income. Well, that's been the rule of thumb for as long as I can remember. But certain papers and research papers that have come out recently have, have suggested that a 25-year-old now needs to save 16% of their income in order to maintain the lifestyle they enjoy today in retirement until mortality. Well, okay, you've got a young person in Victoria, Vancouver, Toronto. They, they can barely scrape together enough for a down payment or a mortgage payment, and you want them to also save 16% of their income, not 10? Like... It's, it's just not, so, so, so what do you do? You just throw your hands up and give up? Uh, like, you know, it, it, it's, there are steps that can be taken, but the, the reality is you can't just talk in, in general rules of thumb. They're great to sort of explain concepts, but they're not applicable in day-to-day -day life. And so what we do when we go through the cash flow exercise is, is two things. One, and, and here's something else that's amazing. If you look at any budgeting worksheet out there. I, I challenge you to do this. Go and look at any uh, budget worksheet, free on Google or whatever, and look at what the first expense item is. What, what would you say it would be? Probably housing. Absolutely. Rent, mortgage, right? Yeah. Now, if you, if you consider any blog or read any book on creating wealth, what's the first thing you should do? Where's the first thing? What's the first thing you should do with your income in order to create wealth? Uh, I was taught buy a house. Buy a property. Pay yourself first. Yeah. Right. So this the save 10% of what you earn, right? Pay yourself first, whatever that looks like. Well, why is it then that every account, every budget worksheet out there does not have pay yourself first? They have pay yourself first at the bottom. They have housing and auto costs and grow like and, and you are at the bottom of the pile. You will never create wealth that way, ever. You've got to take care of yourself first. So in our exercise, we flip that. We put pay yourself first, then we take your fixed expenses, take account for those, and then we have an, an amount that you, you have to work with. But in doing this exercise with people, it lays a foundation for us to create our plans from. We know out the gate 
whether or not there is money that can be utilized for future plans. We do this analysis because traditionally we can sit down and say, okay, you need to save $200 a month to start. And you say, great, but actually your cash flow situation and your lifestyle, there isn't $200 to invest. You're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You, for all we know, you might be slipping further and further into debt in your line of credit. You don't even see it because money's going in and out and all over the place. And that, that's, just, that's just not sustainable. It's not good planning. So we go through a cash flow exercise and set up that foundation and know exactly what you have to work with. Cash is king. So we've got vision scenario, understanding your values, your principles, everything you're working with. We understand cash flow the very building blocks from which you can do any kind of planning, debt repayment, get your, you know, rate the ship, whatever you got to do. Then we do what's called a wealth map. And basically it's a visual representation of your entire life. So it's everything that matters to you and what you're doing to build and support that. And it's based in human behavior and, and human psychology because it's presented in a way that makes it really easy for our minds to recall the information and understand how everything's connected. So the nucleus is, this, is a picture in the middle, something important to you. The right-hand side is all the or qualitative stuff. So it, it's who, who matters to you, what's important, what are you working towards, your goals and objectives and everything else. The left side is your quantitative. It's going to be your numbers and your products, your, your life insurance, all the stuff that you're doing to support and protect your why. But it's presented, as I said, in a fashion that's really easy to recall. And it also allows for a significant amount of continuity on our side. As someone's wealth mentor, if I know their situation inside and out, or at least I should, I would hope I do. And so if I get hit by that bus, it can be extremely frustrating for someone to have to re-explain their situation to a new advisor. For them to really get a good, deep depth understanding of what's going on. And so this wealth map is a really excellent tool for our team to, to uh, analyze and study to get to know a situation for one of our clients and know the whole situation, not just bits and pieces or very superficial. They can dig in really deep and get a good handle on what's happening. And then the final stage on this, now we've got, a, we've got a principles, we've got cash flow, we've got a, a picture. The final stage in this before any implementation occurs is what we call our, our design wealth strategy. And basically we take all the information and we start with a question. If you continue doing what you're doing, what can you reasonably expect your outcome to be? We put all the information into a planning software and present a result. Most people find that they're not doing enough. Most, some are already in the green, they're doing great, but most are in the red. But what's really unique about the way we approach it is we, we don't create the plan and then present it to you. We actually work with you and given what you know you can put towards or the changes you can make because you understand your cash flow. In your mind, you have a picture of how everything's connected and what's happening. We guide you as you take those and make changes to your own plan. So you have that control and that ownership that, that it's almost like a, you have physical control of your plan and we make adjustments and you can see those adjustments in real time in the charts to see, okay, if I increase my contributions into my you know, future retirement stuff by 200 bucks, what's the impact? If I work an extra two years, what's the impact? And you instantly see those changes and can start to take ownership and create your plan with our guidance. Once that's done, 
Now we've done all of the, the, the planning, the understanding situation. Now we can implement. Now we can have conversations about which bucket to use. Do you use an RSP or a TFSA? Do you do insurance? What kind? Do you need it? Do you not? Up till this point, we haven't even talked about any of that. And it's not because it's not important, but you're not just going to start cutting pieces of wood without looking at the blueprints on how you're going to design the house. That's ridiculous. So why do we treat our finances that way? Right. So, I mean, that's, that's really in a, in a nutshell, that not the big nutshell, <laughs> that's, that's the process we go through. Whereas traditionally, and you ask, you know, where, where did design wolf come from? It was a lack of really knowing our clients. Like we did our best, but this process allows us to actually, it's kind of like a, you wouldn't expect a doctor to just ask five questions and expect to know everything about you. You want them to really dig in and understand you before they make a recommendation, you know, that, that might, you know, drastically affect your health. Wealth is no different. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I, I what came to mind as I was looking at this, like I mentioned at the beginning of the financial literacy, there's a massive gap. It just, I mean, I think part of it in fairness to like general, general society, there's so much coming at you, you know, with social media and not even demonizing that, but there's just a million things coming at you all the time. And then you start to see, you know, if you're paying attention to let's say government policy and spending people, there's so much money getting thrown around, even when there's not stimulus spending, like there is right now. And people don't understand the implications. Have you thought about using this as a course at some point even, or like, I feel like even like you know, secondary school or like there's pe- this idea of lifestyle design and just the implications of your decisions and savings. Just it's so, you know, if you have, I would say if you have good parents, <laughs> they've brought that up in you or as parents who know, but yeah. it's not, it's not common at all. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what, John, uh, we, my, my colleague and I, Jose, were having a conversation about this the other day. And we, we actually had a really interesting conversation about this, this whole push regarding financial literacy, this idea that everyone needs to become more financially literate. And, and he challenged me because he said, you know, what if that's, what if that's a complete fallacy? What, what if financial literacy is not what we need to pursue? We don't insist, again, to use a, a medical analogy, uh, we don't insist that we know we're medically literate. I, I, my, I mean, my, my medical knowledge doesn't go much beyond what Advil and, and Tylenol is, right? I don't, I don't insist on learning the procedure to set a broken arm or to perform a minor surgery or things like that. Thank goodness there's Google, but I mean, even then I'm not going to perform it myself, right? Like I'm going to go and seek help or at least a second opinion when my kid bumps his head and he's not doing so good. Like I'm going to go to the hospital and I don't care. I'm going to go get him checked out just to be safe as a professional. It's not to say, I agree that, there's, that this, there's certain things that need to be taught and those things should be covered by financial literacy. Basic finance, like budgeting, like, like cash flow and budgeting, how credit works, um, you know, how many students out there have credit card debt because they're given credit and they just, they don't, they don't understand it. But a lot of that comes back to human behavior. You know, interestingly enough, we're funny creatures, but we're very predictable, even though we're irrational. If I give you $100, $100 bill, and I give, I give, again, John, number two, I give him five 20s. 
you will spend 520s faster than you will that 100. You won't break $100 for a cup of coffee. I mean, you know, I say you won't, but we, we will double, we will think twice about doing that, but we won't think twice about breaking 120 because we got 420s left. It's the same economic value. Why won't we break 100? Because it doesn't feel good. We don't want to break 100, but I'm willing to break 120 because I can still see 420s in there. So, you know, it's completely irrational, but it's how we work. So when we tap our cards, we don't feel that pain until we get the bill. So we get satisfaction of the goods or the services we receive now. We've tapped the card and, we, and that's great. But then the problem is we get the bill two weeks later or a month later, and then there's a significant amount of pain trying to recoup that. So, you know, it, it's, I think that there's a, there's a place for financial literacy, but I think that a, a, an important component that needs to be added in there is human behavior. Understanding why we make the decisions we make. Um, you know, it, it's mental accounting, planning fallacy, uh, optimism bias, confirmation bias. There's, there's so many things that, are, that uh, can, can affect us and are all working simultaneously um, for good or worse, <laughs> for better or for worse for us. But, uh, but yeah, I think financial literacy is important, but perhaps not in the context that we suggest that it is something that everyone should, should know and understand as deeply as it may be uh, suggested right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's, you know it, like I say, it, it would kind of be like insisting that everyone has at least one or two years of, of medical training under their belts, um, you know, in, in order to be medically literate before you go talk to your doctor. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I think, it, I think that's a, a really interesting take on it. And I think maybe, yeah, reframing it is a great call. Um, the last three quick ones here uh, to, to finish up here. Want to briefly ask you about personal development. You mentioned podcasts a, a couple of times. Can you speak to kind of what you do, you know, as a leader in your, in your organization and just, and personally, if you're, whether it's reading or podcasts or courses, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we're a uh, lot of studies on human behavior uh, and books like that. Right now I'm reading a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Uh, incredible book. Uh, you know, a few others. Uh, there's Dan Ariely, uh, Predictably Irrational. Uh, Nassim Taleb uh, with Black Swan. Um, a, a bunch of those. Um, Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. Another fantastic book. Um, highly recommend that one. And uh, the podcast would definitely be the the Brainy Business with with Melina Palmer uh, and Michael Kitsis, uh, which is uh, his podcast is called the Financial Advisors Podcast. Yeah, I think I think that's it. His blog is called the Nerd's Eye View. Uh, very, very famous guy down there. You can find him easily. Um, and, and really just trying to expand the knowledge on on that. The other thing I find is, is community involvement. And not so much obviously with the whole COVID thing, but uh, personal development and, and connection or relationships are something that's extremely important to me. And I think that it's something that has shaped and helped you know, drive both my, my professional career and my, and my personal development is, is just the connections I've made through things like the chamber, um, different organizations I've belonged to in the past, my professional organization, Abacus, um, and, and all of that is, has really been a, a strong, um, a component to, to get me where I am today. And, and 
no matter what career someone's in, uh, what pursuit or passion they have, just being involved um, is something I think that's extremely, extremely important. There's always, usually almost always a demand for people to step up. Even, you know, and, and I find that it's, it's difficult to just simply put a call out. Anybody want to step up and volunteer? Uh, it doesn't happen that often. You really got to, you know, tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, you'd be really good at this. Uh, you should consider, you know, checking it out or putting your name in the, in the hat, so to speak. Um, and I found that that has been extremely, extremely helpful. Great. No, I'd love to hear it. Um, last two, best piece of personal advice that you've received. I'll, I'll take something out of, out of uh, Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference. And, and it was, uh, and I, I like this, it, never split the difference. And this is why. I'm going out for dinner with my wife and I want to wear black shoes with my outfit, but she insists that I wear brown shoes. Now, I could split the difference and wear one black shoe and one brown shoe but we'll both lose <laughs> and I'll look terrible and we won't go out for dinner. So, uh, so that would be, I'll, I'll go with that one. Never split the difference. And uh, that's uh, thanks to Chris Voss there. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And love it. And the last one for you, favorite place to eat uh, in the capital region. Ooh, favorite place to eat. Uh, I would say actually where, where I am, where I'm situated here, I'm pretty close to both um, bin four and lot one. And I will say that they 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 do good food. I I'm I, I'm I have not yet been uh, disappointed by a meal I've had there, and I do try to switch it up. So I I'd say either one, and they always write nice things on the bag too, with the whole right. COVID thing, and you pick it up, you know. So I I do I do appreciate that. But yeah, bin four or lot one. Thanks for stopping by from the trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. If you want to learn more about the interviewee, please check the web and social links provided in the video or listening platform description. Please send any feedback to info at businessexaminer.ca with the subject line podcast. We'll see you next week.